So tonight I want to continue talking about the interdependent origination in terms of the aggregate of mind and body and the aggregate of suffering that we talked about last week. And then uh, hopefully there will be time at the end to introduce this teaching from the Buddha on transcendent origination and we'll have small groups. So the last 20 minutes or so for small groups. So just to picture the 12 links, and remember there were different formulations that the Buddha used, but we have, you know, the, the chain, the interdependent chain, it's really a description of this and how this whole mass of suffering, how stress, the sense there is a somebody who is suffering, how is it that that arises? And how is it that that arises in this natural, impersonal process. So the Buddha describes the mind and body in these five ways, as we talked about last week. We have mental formations, mind and body, six sense spaces, contact, and feeling. Consciousness, if you got it. Karmic, uh, karmic formations, consciousness, mind and body, six sense spaces, the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, and thought, and contact. It's interesting. There's, uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks during this course, a couple of different times, how there's a very important, interesting debate about what consciousness is. And we talked, for those who weren't here last week, we talked a little bit about this last week. Because in some schools of Buddhism, including sometimes here at Common Ground, we use this word awareness, consciousness, in an unrestricted sense, almost as if it's synonymous or at least pointing in the direction of the unconditioned or freedom. And so one way to talk about that process of uh, suffering then, the experience of suffering then conditioning the next moment of existence. So what does suffering do? What does it set in motion? Well, it conditions, because suffering is this, uh, this experience that something's undone, something's unfinished. I'm hurting and I don't want to hurt. So, in terms of a natural process, there's some momentum for something. And that's that momentum of conditioning. It's conditioning the next moment. And with the karmic formations and the ignorance coming out of the suffering, it is entrapping the consciousness in terms of mind and body. So that consciousness is restricted, in a sense, to seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting and thinking, knowing thoughts, knowing sound, knowing smell, knowing sight, knowing whatever I didn't say, of those six things. So, um, in a way, you could say freedom, you know, the freedom of mind with a capital M or the freedom of heart with a capital H, the unrestricted mind and heart becomes restricted through the process or through the conditioning of ignorance and what remains, what um, is unfinished, which is another 
sort of expression of ignorance. Ignorance means something something is set in motion. That's what remains. The karmic formations or dispositions or tendencies. And those tendencies, that ignorance, conditions consciousness. Concocting it, as I think Andy Olensky says, concocting it uh, and in terms of mind and body or these six sensitivities. The mind, the heart, and trapped in this way. Forced then, you know, to have contact in these six ways, unavoidably. And that contact, those experiences, through because we're sensitive, the mind and body sensitive, are informed by our karmic formations, all the leftover stuff is constantly conditioning through the process of perception. I have a sense experience I understand it in a particular way based on the conditioning of the mind, the karmic formation, the dispositions. And out of that process of perceiving, contact perceiving, comes a feeling. It's either a pleasant experience, an unpleasant experience, or a neutral experience. And this whole dynamic of mind and body, there's no way, really nothing we can do at this point. And then the present moment addition is given that there's a mind and body, given that there's perception and contact and feeling every moment, unceasingly, never ending, right? As long as there's a mind and body, there's contact. That's what mind and body implies, you know, sensitivity and contact. And so the only thing that changes these cycles is what happens with that contact, that perception, that feeling? And so the Buddha describes this dynamic or this possibility of that moment of experience being met with ignorance. Ignorance means the misperceiving of that feeling. You know, so that the pleasantness is misperceived as being my pleasantness or belonging to me or something that I know, but it's because of the condition of the mind, feeling, any feeling, whatever it might be, including neutrality, is understood in terms of self. And then that has implications, because as soon as a self, a sense of self, has a feeling, it's going to like it or not like it, or not care about it. Any of those three things is what we mean by craving. Craving is having an opinion, a personal opinion, about a sense experience. So you see where, like, why, just in a superficial way, uh, there's a lot of talk about equanimity, about being okay with stuff, what's coming and going in life. It's not quite that simple, but that's a big... Uh, step, just sort of that simplistic understanding or sense of what it means to be allowing or accepting, understanding that it's this way now. Instead of feeling or cultivating the uh, perception that the feeling is a personal insult or personal opportunity for me or personally insignificant to me because it's neutral. And then when we have that feeling and it feels personal, then when we act on that personal feeling, then from craving we go to grasping. 
grasping is when we're acting on the craving, on the opinion that the mind has about the sense contact or the sense experience. When we do something about it, that's a karmic act. So it sets something in motion, which we call becoming. You can't act on a preference without setting something in motion. And so when, when there's something done, there's like an equal and opposite. We were talking about this on the retreat. In this constructed reality that, that this is, you know, this frictionless constructed reality, when something's done, there has to be an opposite. There's a shadow to it. It's not just that you do something and that's it. So when, when you set emotion becoming, you know, the grasping, then something sets, gets set in motion, which is this, uh, something's going to come of that. Birth and suffering is what comes out of it. Because that becoming, that sense of a somebody who's going to do something to get something or get rid of something or not care about something, that, that has, that's a force that, Andy has a great line, he says, this desire is a disequilibrium in the ability to rest at ease with conditions. You know, it creates a disequilibrium that has reverberations. And the reverberations is that ignorance, what we call that disequilibrium, that ignorance, conditions the next moment of consciousness. So you don't need to think about it. It may not even be useful to think about this in terms of lifetime after lifetime. But just moment by moment, how is this moment conditioning the next moment? How does there appear to be a personal continuity? Because clearly that's what we experience, right? There appears to us to be some kind of personal continuity moment by moment by moment. Well, how does that happen? That's really what this teaching is all about. How does there seem to be, have the appearance of this personal continuity that seems to justify me grasping, me wanting, me not wanting, me getting personally involved with what we're calling experience, sense experiences. In other words, as it often gets translated, this whole mass of suffering. How does this whole mass of suffering come to be? And so the Buddha is describing this process. Andy, uh, and I, I mentioned something similar last week about this this push-pull between the aggregate of the mind and body and the aggregate of suffering. So there is this mind-body phenomena and there is this experience of suffering and the two play together. They bounce off of each other. The sensitivity of the mind-body creates the opportunity for a misunderstanding. That misunderstanding allows for the experience of suffering. Suffering reconditions the mind and body that has a tendency to misunderstand the experience of the mind and body, which then conditions suffering, which has the tendency to condition another moment of mind and body that is going to or likely to misunderstand the experience of the mind and body. So the only way to break this, and this is why the idea of a Buddha is such a big deal, because the only thing that breaks the cycle is a, a teaching that enters the mind, enters this 
dynamic between mind and body and the experience of suffering and says, honey, pay really close attention to what's going on and especially look at your options when a a feeling arises and see if there's another way to relate to feeling instead of thinking that it's personal. I mean, there's other ways to sort of talk about breaking the chain, but this is one of the classic ways to talk about it. Now, the Buddha did this without somebody telling him, hey, see if there's another way to relate to feeling instead of just taking it personally. Like, maybe feeling is just feeling. Pleasantness is just pleasantness. Unpleasantness is just unpleasantness. Neutrality is just neutrality. Because what happens when that experience, when uh, that wisdom or that understanding enters in. So we get some teaching some way and are fortunate enough to remember it in a moment of experience. And then we're looking at it right there in that moment of experience. And the feeling arises, you know, we're observing the feeling arising. And now because we're prepared, we've got some information and now we're projecting or applying the information to the experience perhaps feeling is just feeling to counter the condition tendency which is that's my feeling this is happening to me I don't like it I like it I don't care about it and so then once the mind gets a taste of what change is set in motion from the introduction of that information and the application of that information, then the mind experiences something. That impersonal process experiences something. It experiences the freedom from the normal resulting tension that would come from craving, grasping, becoming, birth and death, the continuation of the cycles of stress. All of a sudden, in that moment, there isn't that experience of stress. And in the mind, that moment of not the mind not being afflicted by stress then conditions the next moment. And so everything from that moment on has changed a little bit. Because now the next birth, you know, into the next moment of experience has been conditioned by not suffering because the mind didn't grasp, didn't crave pleasant, unpleasant, didn't react to the pleasantness and unpleasantness in that moment, in that moment's experience. So now that mind, the next mind moment, is being conditioned by a moment of freedom. And so this is how we, the mind, as a natural process, with no center to it, begins to change. So you could say then that natural process has shifted and now we say from this point of view that somebody's on the path. Somebody's on the path of practice, meaning they're practicing steadying the mind, steadying the attention in order to be able to discern different intentions to follow at each moment's experience. So in each moment when that experience is being known, there are different intentions that arise in that moment. Some intentions are really strong. There's a deep groove. Some are weaker. When I have my pain in the knee, the stronger intention is, you know, move the damn knee, or why is this pain happening to me? 
and it, one way or another, it feels personal. But there are more faint intentions, you know, or growing stronger now intentions that are saying it's just an unpleasant sensation being known, or recognizing it as an impersonal phenomena that's arising due to causes and conditions. And so there's this uh, dynamic, this tug of war or war between, you know, intentions that lead to non-suffering and intentions that lead to suffering. And when the, the practice isn't in any moment, if we remember to be awake at that moment of sense experience, which of course is every moment through sense experience, and in particular awake to the different intentions that are there, it's possible to recognize, it's like when you see an intention, you're seeing in a very uh, seed-like way what it's going to lead to. It's like you're tasting, oh, if that intention is allowed to blossom, then it's going to lead to the release, the non-stress. If that intention is allowed to blossom, be acted on, it's going to lead to contraction. So this is that place of morality in Buddhism where the mind is discerning skillful and unskillful. But you can see why it takes a steady attention because this is pretty subtle ground to be aware of the possibilities of how to relate to this moment. That there are even possibilities is sort of a breakthrough. Like we don't have to act on the strongest tendency of the mind. It's like somebody pushes our button, somebody we love, let's say, pushes our button, and we want to, you know, that sort of primal instinct to get even, to hurt them, comes up. But, you know, we can, this is just giving an example that I hope we all relate to, we can see, like, oh, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to set in motion, right? So we look for another intention, like, to keep quiet, or to forgive ourselves for being so angry. Or to see it all as impersonal and not act on it, not need to act on it, not feel compelled to act on it because of that. So this is the interdependent arising of suffering on the opposite side, you know, where we have craving, grasping, becoming, birth and death and ignorance. And this is the interdependent arising of mind and body on this other side, or the five aggregates. This is something from the Buddha. Mara is talking to one of the Buddha's disciples. Mara says, Mara is the personification of our ignorance and the Lord of doubt and the one, the sort of force of ignorance that keeps us, keep us in this chain of birth and death, suffering, and the suffering. So Mara says to this practitioner, by whom has this puppet been created? Where is the make it, maker of this puppet? Where has the puppet arisen? Where does the puppet cease? Right, so he's challenging this practitioner, and this person responds, probably to their own mind, right? This puppet is not made by itself, nor is it made by another. It has come to be dependent on a cause. 
with the causes breakup, it will cease. As when a seed is sown in a field, it grows depending on a pair of factors. It requires both the soil's nutrients and a steady supply of moisture. Just so, the aggregates and elements and these six sense bases of sensory contact have come, have come to be dependent on a cause. With the causes breakup, they will cease. There are a few more quotes from the Buddha in terms of this process that I'm talking about. This is from the Buddha. Dependent on eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. So the Buddha is describing this moment of contact. You have sensitivity, you have an object that the sensitivity is sensitive to, and you have this consciousness arising, the three arising together. The meeting of these three is contact. With contact as a condition, there is feeling. When one feels, that one perceives. What one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about, that one mentally proliferates. I was reading an article recently um, that was, I think, an inside journal, this online journal uh, from the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. I think it was in the fall one. And uh, Ajahn Tanisaro wrote an article about dependent origination. And he talks about this word, many of you have heard this, Pali word, papancha, which usually gets translated as mental proliferation. But he, being a scholar, he really dissects how it was used in the teachings of the Buddha and, you know, some study of the origins of the word. And he says, it's kind of mental proliferation, but it's, it's more specific than that. The way that it's used, when you really dissect and look at the way that it was used in the talks by the Buddha, this word papancha, mental proliferation, it's, it's specifically mental proliferation uh, that, in the way that it was used, always involves an I am. So it always has sort of a self-centered nature to it or quality to it. And it's always referred to as leading to conflict. So it's mental proliferation that always leads to problems. When you put a self in some stream of thought, there's always going to be conflicts because whatever we construct that sense of self to be, that separated thing to be, then whatever its needs are seen to be, they're going to be in conflict with other beings that have needs. There's no way to construct something apart without it being sort of in conflict with the natural dynamic of everything else. Because whatever that thing is, it's going to have preferences. It's going to have needs. So keep this in mind as I finish reading this passage from the Buddha. What what one perceives, that one thinks about. What one thinks about that one mentally proliferates. So that's probably translation of the word papancha. What one has mentally proliferated as the source, perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferations beset a person with respect to the past, future, and present, 
forms cogn- uh, cognizable through the eye. So this whole world of self, of past, the future, present, all this comes to be through the misunderstanding of experience, through the introduction that this feeling, this pleasant feeling is happening to me, belongs to me, that I like this, I want that, or I don't want that, or I don't care about that. And then in terms of craving, the Buddha says, when one is touched by a pleasant feeling, one delights in it, welcomes it, and remains holding to it. Then one, then the underlying tendency to lust lies within one. When one is touched by a painful feeling, if one sorrows, grieves, and laments, weeps, beating one's breast, and becomes distraught, then the underlying tendency to aversion lies within one. When, it, when one is touched by a pleasant feeling, if one does not delight in it, welcome it, and remain, remains holding to it, then the underlying tendency to lust does not lie within one. When one is touched by a painful feeling, one does not sorrow, grieve, lament. One does not weep, beating one's breast and become distraught. Then the underlying tendency to aversion does not lie within one. And then to grasping, on to grasping. There are four kinds of clinging or grasping. Upadana is the Pali word. Clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to views, clinging to rules and observances, or routines even, clinging to the doctrine of self. With the arising of craving, there is the arising of clinging. With the cessation of craving, there is the cessation of clinging. Practitioners, when one dwells contemplating gratification in things that can be clung to, craving increases. So when you do experience something you like, and then you contemplate gratification, you contemplate having it, indulging in it, then the craving increases. I mean, it's such a simple statement that it makes, it's really important, like, why do we contemplate gratification with objects that we crave? Because we get confused, the mind gets confused. There's a certain pleasantness. When I imagine having ice cream, there's a certain pleasantness on the surface of that imagining. But actually, it's suffering. But on the surface, it looks good to be imagining having a pleasant experience down the road. And of course, that just strengthens the tendency to want it. So, the Buddha has a couple other statements. These are from different discourses. These uh, quotes are collected by Andy Olensky in a course he did on uh, interdependent origination that I took a long time ago. When one abides inflamed by lust, fettered, infatuated, contemplating gratification, then the five aggregates, the mind and body, affected by clinging, are built up for oneself in the future, setting in motion another moment with the mind and body. And one's craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this and that, and delights in this and that, increases. One's bodily and mental troubles increase. One's bodily and mental torments increase. One's bodily and mental fevers increase. And one experiences bodily and mental suffering. So that's just another way of saying what I was trying to say uh, several minutes ago, that a moment of suffering conditions the rebirth of the mind and body in the next moment. 
So it's more likely, as the Buddha says here, uh, more likely to be accompanied by delight and lust. And then the Buddha says in another passage, on seeing a form with the eye, one lusts after it if it is pleasing. One dislikes it if it's unpleasing. One abides with mindfulness. One abides with mindfulness of the body unestablished with a limited mind engaged as one is in favoring and opposing whatever feeling one feels whether pleasant or painful or neither pleasant or painful one delights in that feeling welcomes it and remains holding to it and one does so as one does so delights arise in one now delight in feeling is clinging right so it goes from just uh, attraction to action grasping so I thought what would be useful in the small groups is to uh, think about some time maybe probably from today might be easier from something fresh and look at the experience um, as best you can of taking birth you know, there's a moment of experience and it's a real taking birth because whatever happened in the previous moment that has ceased in order for the mind to have an experience being known in this moment and then in a moment and you know it's nice of course to choose really strong moments of experience because it will be easier to understand strong moments of experience get our attention they're easier to remember as we're reflecting now about it. So you think about a strong moment of experience with something really unpleasant arose or something pleasant arose. And you can even do it, you know, now as I'm talking. And then you're not going to be able to break apart feeling and perception and sense contact and the arriving in of mental formations. No. Like uh, Ajahn Chah has this description. He says, you know, don't beat yourself up. It's like when you're in climbing a tree and you're 30 feet up and you fall out, do you notice the different branches on the way down? No. You only know that you hit the ground and it hurts. And that's, that's his sort of explana- explanation about this, that in any given moment, all we either know is that this moment of contact hurts because the mind is grasping or this moment of contact doesn't hurt because the mind in a sense is leaving it alone wisdom is leaving it alone so the model you know like is just helping us gain faith in the practice kind of having a sense of both how to practice and that the practice is relevant so that we're actually apply ourselves so what we can notice as we bring to mind remember an experience from earlier today or the past or just noticing experience right now we just notice whether it hurts or not suffering and the end of suffering that's what's relevant moment by moment and then if it hurts then we just notice the tendency for that and if it's not hurting we notice the tendency of that we see how it conditions the next moment so this is the importance of continuity of mindfulness when we're suffering it's so likely we're going to suffer in the next moment when the mind is caught 
identified, reacting, struggling, it's really hard to break that cycle. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying it's not easy. And when the mind is relatively free, not attached, not grasping, not trying to become, feeling instead contented, peaceful, serene, feeling equanimous with the conditions that are coming and going, then it's very likely in the next moment that the tendency in the mind is just to let things be, not to personally react to the pleasantness or unpleasant of experience. And we see this, like if we've built up some real contentedness, some real calm, and then something noxious happens, you know, somebody clears their throat in the meditation hall, or um, we remember our to-do list near the end of the sit, and then we remember what we got to do next. But there's a sense of immunity to grasping, to some degree, right? We've all experienced that to some degree, maybe not to the perfect degree. As opposed to other times when our mind has been very involved in greed and aversion, and then we remember our to-do list, we take it up with a vengeance, you know, the fear or the anxiety that's associated with the work we have to do or we should have done but haven't done. So we want to really look at that cycling. So it's not so much about just that moment when there's feeling, but it's about feeling and mental suffering coming out of a particular feeling and then what that does, what that sets in motion, what the tendency of the mind is for the preceding moments the following moments, rather. And then the same thing when there is uh, some degree of space in the mind, wisdom in the mind, non-attachment, letting things be, then what sets, is set in motion from that? And uh, this would be really great to share. And it, we learn from both. You know, paying attention to how suffering is set in motion, how it has its legs tends to continue, has the strong tendency to continue, is really good to see because it makes the mind really vigilant to not miss an opportunity to break the cycle and then once it breaks the cycle to be really vigilant not to lose it because it's easy once there is some contentedness and ease, it can seem okay to grasp because in that moment the heart's relatively unobstructed and then it doesn't feel like we have to practice because we're feeling relatively good. So why not pick up that attachment and dwell on it, proliferate? Because it always leads to conflict. You know, that's what mental proliferation, that's what papacha means, that when you pick up an object <coughs> with a sense of self, which always means with preferences, then there's no way to avoid suffering it will be set in motion. So the more we get that, <clears throat> the more there is this samvega, this spiritual urgency, to be really attentive to what the mind is doing with sense experience, the present moment. And Buddha says, you know, being mindful is the path to the deathless. Not being mindful, it's as if we're already dead. So not paying attention to this process is the Buddha likens it to being already dead because nothing changes. And the Buddha has many graphic images of the 
endlessness of samsara, like how this pattern repeats itself. How many times have I heard, have you probably heard, people talking or hear ourselves talking about how we keep repeating the same thing over and over again, you know? I know I shouldn't overeat, and then I overeat. I know I shouldn't be watching this much media, and then I do it again. I know I shouldn't be gossiping, and then I do it again, and then I suffer the ill effects. You know, why is that? Something's being missed. Clearly, the mind isn't seeing something that it needs to see. Because no sane mind would consciously set in motion repeated cycles of suffering. So it's happening as if accidental, but we don't have to be accident prone. We can see the thing that's not being seen, and that's really the, the edge of our practice. Next week we're going to talk about transcendent origination. I'll send out a reading, but I did make a copy for everyone to take. So uh, either on your way to your small groups or later at the very end, you can pick up a copy so you can reflect on it over the week. Let's count by six teams. Steve, do you want to start? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, go ahead, Ian. Jonathan? Jerry? Okay. And let's start with Ken. Ken. So let's have 15 and 16, a group of four in my office, and uh, 13 in Shelley's office, 12, 11, 10 and 9 in the community room, 8 and 7 in the uh, lobby, uh, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and 1 can be in the white couch. You might want to bring a blanket. Is that 14? Anybody in 14 know where to go? Okay. <laughs> 14, right over here. Or if you prefer, you could use the workshop downstairs. So somebody from group one can pick up the keys from me. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> 